from the campus of Stanford University, this is Schools In. They believe that what we're being told is everything they need to know and they just pay attention to that. You actually have to teach the teachers how to teach for innovation. With your hosts, Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. Welcome to Schools In. I'm Denise Pope, Senior Lecturer with the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford University. I'm here with my co-host, Dan Schwartz, Dean of the Graduate School of Education. Hello, Denise. Hi, Dan. How's it going? I'm, I'm good, and I'm really excited about this show as well. I'm super excited. My, my dinnertime conversation was, Mom's going to interview Saul Khan? Oh my gosh, he's a rock star. You know, we use it all the time. So I had to go on and figure out what they were talking about. Because you did not know this? I had Everybody never. Everybody knows. I knew, no. Everybody knows Khan Academy. Okay. I knew there was such a thing called Khan Academy. I knew there was someone named Saul Khan who was a rock star. But I had never personally gone on to see what it was all about. So last night, knowing that we were going to interview today, I went on. First of all, it's awesome, right? It's a website. And you can learn a lesson on just about anything. I thought it was just math and science, and I was an English teacher. Uh, but there's lessons on grammar. There's, there's lessons on almost everything, really. So I decided to test this out, and I decided to be brave and, and go to a math lesson, which is not my <laughs> Denise, forte. Denise, you have to get over this. I know. It's not my, so I went to math. So here's what I did. I decided to go to fifth grade math because I thought, don't do anything too strenuous. Okay. So I went to fifth grade math and I went on to fractions, dividing fractions. Ah, very good. Okay. And I will just tell you this. First of all, Sal's voice, you'll hear it in a second, is just, it's awesome. I could listen to it all day. But if someone had taught me fractions the way, this was like a six minute video, super short with some pictures that you follow along as the pencil draws it out. And they, you know, it was uh, three-fourths um, as a fraction, and it was actually, in this case, it was um, multiplied by four. And he drew little bars that divi- were divided by f- into fourths. There were three of them. And then he showed me what you do when you do four of them. But see, it, nobody taught me this. People just taught me to memorize that you multiply the top of the fraction. I don't even know if it's the denominator or the numerator. Yeah, yeah. How sad is that? Yeah. And, and, and you just divide, and that's the answer. Nobody showed me why. This little six-minute video showed me why. It was really cool. I, I have such an urge to give you a test right now. I'm that scared. Well, they <laughs> one, give you a one test. One-fifth times 12. Wow. One-fifth times No, let it go. Let it go. Let it go. 12 divided by 5. Oh, Saul Khan is nodding Saul his Khan head. Saul Khan is yes. nodding his head. So, can I say one thing though? I liked that they right at the end of the video, you have a way to apply what you learn. They give you a little problem set, and if you were stuck, they say like need a hint. So it was an overall very pleasant experience. I did do a little sneak peek at sixth grade, and apparently in sixth grade you jump right into statistics and interquartile something mm-hmm. or other, mm-hmm. and I thought. No, I better stay in fifth grade. <laughs> so that that was my experience last night. No, it really is the Goldilocks sweet spot. So I teach the uh, intro PhD stats course here, and I'm not a statistician. And, you know, I just use it. And there's this one concept I was just having a horrible time figuring out. So I went to Wikipedia, and Wikipedia is nothing but symbols, right? It's really – it's whatever the entry there is. It is not for me. I eventually went to Khan Academy to see would it explain it for me. Turned out 
No, it was a little too too simple. It was sort of below what I needed as a teacher for this very complex concept. But for someone who's just learning this stuff, it's like the perfect spot. It's so really, your students are going to love it. They are. Yeah. They are. They're going to go to it and, <laughs> and then realize why I, I learned it wrong and told them the wrong thing. Oh, boy. So uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Saul Khan. He is the inventor, creator, nurturer, uh, advocate, everything for the Khan Academy, which is changing the world. So hello, Saul. Hello. Great to be here. Welcome. So let me see if I get the history of the Khan Academy right and then ask you a question. It started where, for your relatives, you were making these short videos to help them learn their content. And then your relatives started you know, showing this to other people who also like this. And then going through the, the Graduate School of Education time machine, there's now 150 million people using this stuff. So this is like a crazy journey for you, right? It, it's, it's not like at the age of 15, I decided I was going to be a doctor. I went to med school, and now you know, at age 40, I'm a practicing doctor. This is like a really random path for you. What is this like to have such a strange rocket in a trajectory you'd never chosen? Yeah, it has been surprising yeah. <laughs> what happened. And then you got the narrative pretty close. It started with me tutoring one cousin initially and then several. And then I started to see patterns that even the ones that were pretty good students were had gaps in their knowledge. You know, when they had learned things, they learned it in a very kind of drill and kill memorization way. They didn't understand how things fit together. And the, the first kind of kind of had nothing to do with videos. It was actually these practice problems because mm -hmm. I wanted them to get more practice and I as their tutor to see what they were doing. And it was a friend who suggested, why don't you make some, some mm. videos and upload it onto YouTube for your cousins? I thought it was a, a horrible idea. I said, mm. no, YouTube's for cats playing piano. Oh, it's not for oh, yes. interesting. <laughs> and it is that, too. But <laughs> and, uh, but, but I, I, I started putting it out there for my cousins. And, and actually, I think the, the way it grew is this was 2006. And I wasn't the first person to put math or education or science videos on YouTube. But something about the form factor, you know, I was making it for cousins. And I think people could tell that they felt intimate. They yeah. felt very personal. Yeah. And people started to connect with it. And the, the viewership kept growing. I, I started to get comments from folks. And you know, a lot of them were just thank yous. And even that, I thought was a big deal. Most of YouTube, the comments are not thank you. <laughs> They're a little <laughs> yeah. uh, But then people start saying, I passed my class because of this. I, I want to become a physicist because of this. Can you do something on photosynthesis? Can you do something on uh, uh, present value? And I just uh, kept going. And it, it's true at the time. I, you know, my my formal background is in computer science, math. I at the time I was working as an analyst in an investment firm, but it was always a bit of a dream for myself. You know, when I was an undergrad, I I, I had a fellowship where I worked on education software for a little while, and. I got rejected to be a Rhodes Scholar twice, but both times I, I said, if I ever get to Oxford, I would do a PhD in education. So I wanted to be <laughs> you guys. <laughs> uh, but one thing led to another, and, and I was down that path. But definitely when my cousins needed help, I, I viewed that as a an outlet for this other muscle, this other part of me that I, I could exercise. That's great. So you can probably hear from his voice, Denise. It is awesome. Oh, no, I That's would listen awesome. to his voice yeah, yeah. all day. So I, before we move on... Y'all are I, making a, a brown man blush. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and I do think you may have the best voice and clearest explanations, but you haven't been put to the test. So I'm going to pitch you against Denise, who also has a oh, great voice. This is and so very, very, so, uh, I But will, I don't ha know everything. He knows everything. You'll know this. Okay. So, so I, I've got a little spinner here, and I'm going to spin it. 
And then where it lands on, you, you're going to get uh, 20 seconds to explain this. Okay. Okay. So, Denise, you go first. Okay. Okay. Uh, spin. Okay. Ready? Yeah. How do you make a peanut butter sandwich? Are you serious? How do yes. you make a peanut butter yes. sandwich? You go to the store. You buy bread and you buy peanut butter. I would also add jelly. You open the top of the peanut butter and the jelly. You open the bag of the bread. You put the two pieces of the bread flat. You get a knife out of a drawer. You stick the knife into the peanut butter. You smear it on the bread. You clean it off because you don't want to contaminate the jelly with the peanut butter. You stick the knife in the jelly. You smear it on the bread and you put the two pieces together. Done. That was awesome. You know, I, I think you, your, your version of Khan Academy would be to rap music. You were getting really close. <laughs> I was pressured by time. <laughs> okay, Saul. So uh, Denise says you know everything. Uh, so let's see what the spinner comes up with. Oh, Boy. God. Okay, you have 20 seconds to explain. You're the pilot of a 747 jumbo jet that's trying to land in a giant electrical storm. Go. <laughs> okay, totally unfair. Totally unfair. I'm... I'm... Actually, what you would know. <laughs> <laughs> no, so there is a question that my kids want to know. Mm -hmm. Where does Saul Khan go when he doesn't know the answer? Because everybody goes to Khan Academy. Where does Saul go? I promised them I would ask that question. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a good question. You, you know, if you were to visit my, my office right now, you would – I definitely – when I'm going into a subject, say statistics or world history, I definitely have a stack of the – prominent textbooks. I, I try to kind of slurp that in. I look at things online too. And, and you're right, Wikipedia is oftentimes cryptic. It's comprehensive oftentimes, but it's cryptic. Um, and so I think one of the things that, you know, not just me, but hopefully Khan Academy has a muscle of take this broader world of knowledge and then uh, distill it. And, and I think part of our value add is, you know, sometimes I've read 10 textbooks and they're all saying the same thing and there's a leap like, you know, how does A lead to B? And they're, yeah. they're just all saying because. Yeah, yeah. And yep. my, I remember there was one thing in immunology when I was studying that. And I asked my, my wife, who's a rheumatologist, she's like, oh, that's a good question. And then I asked a – I called up a friend who's a professor at Duke and studies immunology. And I said, what, what about – he's like, oh, actually, we don't know. It's an area of open research right now. And I was like, why didn't the textbooks just say we don't know? Uh, and then when I did the video, I was able to say we don't know. But, but that's, that's roughly the process. Read a lot. Talk to a lot of people feel like, hey, do I intuitively get it? Can I explain it the way I could explain fractions? And if, and if, if I can, I'll, I'll start. All right. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking with the man who knows everything, Saul Khan, <laughs> who started Khan Academy. You don't know the name of my son. <laughs> <laughs> What's in my pocket? Listen, <laughs> I don't know much. So uh, Khan Academy has been, I don't know if I would say disruptive, but it's really gone to scale and captured people's imagination. And like all things that do that, I suspect you get criticized. And so I was wondering, have there been criticisms that concern you the most? Not, not in the sense that they're personal attacks, but in the sense that, yeah, this is something we need to work on. I think there's both. I think there's criticisms that worry me because they come out of uh, what I believe is a misperception of what Khan Academy is or what we're trying to do. So even you know in the early days, we got these very hyperbolic headlines: the math of Khan, the the Messiah. <laughs> I, I like the math of Khan. I'm, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's uh, catchy. Uh, well, it's a little Star Trek. <laughs> but but you could imagine if you're a a real teacher in a physics class or you'd be like, oh, well, that's – they're just – you know, that, that's some dilettante making some explanations right. and, you know, their site, they have practice and all that. That's valuable. But what I do in the classroom is, you know, I'm, I'm forming bonds with individual students. I'm taking them to the next level, higher order tasks. And 
I think some of that reaction comes from some of that hyperbolic headlines. Uh, but we're very clear, and I think this is where it's a misperception, Khan Academy's intention is in no way to try to replace the physical teacher. It's actually to, to help the physical teacher or, or liberate the classroom so that more classrooms can do some, some of those higher order tasks. So uh, that's one criticism. Hopefully we're, we're better at making it very clear that this isn't us versus the physical world. This is us with the physical world. Uh, but you know, every time I hear that, I definitely say, oh, wait, wait a second. Right, <laughs> let, let me explain right. ourselves. Um, I think there's other criticisms which are very fair, but this is also a, I think one of the, the good things about the online, the internet world is you know, a lot of those, that early content that we were talking about, I mean, this was for cousins, and I was very informal. I think sometimes that was charming, but sometimes, you know, the terminology wasn't ultra-precise. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes ultra-precise terminology can actually be bad for the learner. But I, I, I could, you know, someone said, hey, that's not the exact term or this, that. And so over time, we definitely have been modifying a lot. And one of the interesting things about the form factor of online video or practice or, or any of this stuff is that we get regular feedback and data You know, that's out there for everyone to see. And so on a regular basis, we have our community, a lot of whom are professors, experts in the field, telling us, hey, that's not exactly right. I remember I made a video on how a, a action potential travels down a neuron. And a, a professor of electrophysiology at University of Pennsylvania emailed me saying, hey, I've been using your, your biology videos for some of my fellows. Uh, but and, and what you just explained is the textbook explanation, and it's intuitive, but I just did I just published a paper two weeks ago that shows mm. that it's incorrect, mm. that the, the, the dogma is incorrect. And so I, I took his email screen capture and it says, hey, look, I just got this email from <laughs> someone who's at the leading edge of the field. And, and so we try to embrace that type of thing. Uh, you know, a lot of times if there's a if, if I'm in process in a, video, in, a, in a math problem, some of those examples I'm doing in real time because I, I, I don't want the student to feel like, oh, everyone just gets the answer immediately. So you'll hear me go down a path a little bit, then back up and go forward. And, if, and so we actually think we don't want like these glaring errors that would uh, lead students down the wrong path. But there is something about exposing your vulnerabilities and, and showing, hey, if 10 seconds you go down the wrong path, that's okay. And then show the t student that you can back up and, and fix it. So we do some things like that. So a lot of times if there's um, minor uh, corrections, we might add a video to show that, hey, th these things happen. So, the, so the, the two are, because you've gone to scale, people be mistakenly believe that you're claiming that this is for every all things. Yep. And then the other is sometimes the content you got to go back and fix it. For sure. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are speaking with Saul Khan, the founder, creator uh, of Khan Academy, and learning about sort of online learning and how people can use these YouTube videos for the benefit of their education. You have started an actual school with, with, with walls, <laughs> not online. So it, what's, the, what's the purpose of that versus all of the online uh, education that you've been providing? Yeah, so, so the online, you know, as, as mentioned, that reached 150 million people last year. We hope that over the next 10, 15 years, you know, this is all non-commercial, not-for-profit, we can reach billions of students around the world. And we give them, you know, we are associated with videos, but most of our, our resources are, you know, how do we give them practice? How do we give them feedback? How do we create a community where they can maybe help each other one day? But even in that world, if, if Khan Academy is successful, it, you could still imagine the physical classroom not changing much. 
you know, a lot of folks have been talking about personalized learning, mastery-based learning, uh, experiential learning, inquiry-based learning for a long time. But if you go to most classrooms in most of the world today, they are just like the classrooms you and I grew up in. You know, there's a, someone giving a lecture in the front and student kids taking notes or pretending to, to, to pay attention. And, and there's a lot of really cool innovation going on in the physical school world right now. But we thought it would be interesting to have our own lab. So underneath our offices, we started what's called KLS, Khan Lab School, and it's to say, okay, in a world where things like Khan Academy exist, how can we push the envelope in the physical environment? Uh, when you don't have a one-pace-fits-all lecture anymore, well, then the, the classroom, it doesn't have to – the students can work at a pace that suits them. And if that's happening, then why do you have to separate kids by perceived ability? Why do you have to separate them by age? In fact, can you use that diversity to your advantage? Can you have students who are a little bit further ahead helping the ones that are a little bit further behind? And can you make the development of metacognitive skills explicit? They're, they tend to be implicit. And you know, if you look at most standards at grade levels, there's very little mention of – you know, empathy or communication or, or things like this. There's the classic dilemma of someone's independence level and maturity and versus their content knowledge. And in a, you know, we've all seen the situation, hey, so-and-so kind of didn't get the content in fifth grade, but he's really big now. So let's put him in sixth grade. <laughs> we can't hold him back any <laughs> Yeah, longer. he's physically, he physically looks like a, sixth, a seventh grader, so he has to be in at least sixth grade. And that that's somewhat absurd, but, you know, in a traditional model, what else do you do? But we're, we're experimenting with, let's make these orthogonal dimensions, that your independence level, you, you can be someone who needs a little help with self-regulation, but you're racing ahead in math or, or reading or writing. Or you could be someone who's actually quite mature and can self-regulate, and, and so you can be given a lot of independence, but you might need to review you know, your, your second grade math or, or some of your reading skills. Uh, it's full day, full year. So we're trying to challenge all of these assumptions that when you look at them, in the you're just like, yeah, why, do, why does that exist? Why is it that way? Uh, why does school end at 3 o'clock when you know, most families today aren't able to kind of go home and be with their kids at that time? Uh, you know, There's this classic homework dilemma of, uh, you know, too much homework, too little homework. But what we know is students need to spend time with their families and they need to sleep. And so we try to make the whole learning experience consistent for all the students and it happens from nine to six. So there's a whole bunch of things that we're, we're trying to, to push the envelope on. Some of them will hopefully work and some won't. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We will have more with Saul Khan and Khan Academy next on Sirius XM Insight 121. Students focus on what they were told, not paying attention to the situation. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. So they're not going to see anything new because they're so busy trying to copy what you told them. From the campus of Stanford University. Welcome back to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking today with Saul Khan, who started Khan Academy, online learning for kids adults, everyone worldwide. And that's actually a question that I have for you. We, I am hearing stories that, that you're changing lives internationally. Uh, is this true? Yeah, that, that's, that's the, the hope and the, the vision. And, you know, uh, of the over 100 million people who came last year, about a third have been from outside of the U.S. And we would expect over the next five, 10 years, it might, might flip, that most will come from outside of the U.S. And you know, probably the, the coolest story I've heard in the last year uh, it turns out I got this letter from this young girl in Afghanistan. Uh, her name's Sultana. She's 12 years old. Taliban takes over her town, forbids young girls from going to school. Uh, she has to stay home. Her brother-in-law sees some potential in her, gets her a laptop and internet connection. She uses the internet to self-educate herself on English, which is a little scary. But she, <laughs> and 
she asks a relative, get me any material you can that's written in English because I'm trying to learn English. And one of her relatives traveled to Pakistan, got a Time magazine, and there happened to be an article on Khan Academy in that Time magazine. She's like, well, what is this thing? And so she starts going on Khan Academy, and she was at like a fourth or fifth grade level when she started. This was about five years ago. And just spent every waking moment that she could when she wasn't cooking or cleaning or taking care of the household on Khan Academy. And uh, when she was about 17 or 18, she got connected with a young woman in, in the States on this kind of language exchange site. And when that girl, Emily, said, well, what do you want to do? She says, well, I, I dream of physics. And Emily said, well, why don't you, why, you know, you could come to the U.S. Why don't you take the SAT? And Sultana smuggled herself into Pakistan, 30-hour wow. journeys, you know, one of the most dangerous borders in the world, takes the SAT, does well enough gets admission at some U.S. universities, isn't able to come to the U.S. And this is what this is actually where, when they contacted me, and I was like, this is a this is an amazing story. Uh, and luckily, somehow, and I had nothing to do with it. Nicholas Kristof finds out <laughs> the story, writes an op-ed piece in the New York Times uh, called the, the Taliban's Worst Fear, and she got political asylum after that. And so she's now in the U.S. Wow. at Arizona State studying wow. physics, rocking curriculum. And this is a young girl that, uh, you know, at, at age 12 was forbidden from going to school and I, I met her about a month ago. She came over to the office. I, I think she's going to be an incredible physicist. That is the story. best story. I love that story. It's almost making me cry. You have definitely changed lives. Let's switch a little bit from individuals to the state of the online education world. So kind of there's this class of things like Khan Academy, which are kind of smaller units that can be packaged together. Uh, we have a colleague who makes science simulations and he's had a half a billion downloads internationally, 85 languages. So these are kind of tiles. And then on the other side, we have MOOCs, which are these courses. They're full semester-long courses that are online, and hundreds of thousands of people sign up for them. So where, where, where are we going to be in about 10 years on sort of the online space for either classrooms or self-instruction? Any, any sense of the trends or the... So the so way we think about it, there's there's two broad needs. One is you have access to a classroom, and we ideally everyone would have access to a classroom. But if you have access to a classroom, how do you supercharge that? And so that's where Khan Academy, as you mentioned, it, it can create it, – it's, it's providing a series of tiles or tools that can be integrated with a classroom for the teacher, for the students there. So the classroom can be more personalized, more data-driven. Human time can be more focused on humans actually interacting as opposed to you know, being lectured at and, or, or being moved at, at the same pace. But if you don't have access to a classroom, if you're sultana of the world, that those tiles can actually be put together in a fairly cohesive narrative. But it's at your, once again, it's at your own time and pace. It might take some people three weeks to learn algebra. It might take some people three years to learn algebra. But that's okay as long as you actually learn algebra. And what we hope to do is those tiles can be put together and then eventually lead to some way that you could prove what you know. You could call it a credential. And that, that proof isn't even just in a vacuum, but it's, it's immediately a bridge to getting a job or, or plugging into the formal academic system. I think things like MOOCs, which I'm big fans of, right now they're operating more at kind of the professional level uh, to a large degree. And they're more straight adaptations of traditional courses. While what we're trying to do is a little bit more of, hey, we can integrate with a classroom. We're not trying to replace that classroom. Uh, or we could be strung together at kind of your own time and pace, and, but eventually reach uh, an outcome. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope, and we are speaking with Saul Khan today from Khan Academy. Saul, so one of the things I was thinking is, is your vision that you want people in front of screens 
all day long. Is that is that the best way to learn? And I and I, I think the answer is no. But you could see from from that answer that you just gave, people might get the wrong impression. Yeah, you know that's another reason why we did the lab school because Khan Academy is a tool, and like any tool, it can be used well or it could be used badly. Uh, and we've heard stories of you know someone just putting kids in front of a screen and. You know, you could we could debate how how healthy that is or isn't. What 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 we do at the lab school, what I do with my own children is sometimes you know screen time isn't always good, isn't always bad. It's like reading a book. It's you know it depends what you're reading. You could watch on TV, watch a documentary, or you could be watching you know some kind of you know, reality television or whatever it might be. And so at the lab school. Some of the screen time, we, we make sure it's interactive, that even while you're doing exercises or that your peers are around and you're actually helping each other. So in a lot of ways, it's, there's more humanity than even in a traditional classroom where, you know, passively seeing a, a human perform and passively watching a video aren't that different. Um, but if that can happen in a personalized way and fairly efficiently in one or two hours a day, then most of the day actually gets freed up to do very interactive things, build projects, you know, work on your portfolio, work in teams, have Socratic dialogue. And so what I always tell folks, it's not you know, screen time or no screen time. It's you know, what are you not doing? If you're not spending time conversing with others, if you're not spending time helping each other, if you're not spending time just running outside uh, you know, in the sun, that's the problem. Uh, if, you're, if you're not able to learn at your, the level that's appropriate for you, if you're not able to fill in your gaps, uh, that's the problem. And so you know, we should use whatever tools, uh, whether they're books or, or Khan Academy or, or you know, peers uh, that are available. So whenever I see people who have success at scale, oftentimes there's the belief that the scale is evidence that it's a good product, that the market, the market determines what's a good product. Uh, I suspect Saul has thought a lot about uh, how do we know if this is good and what are the studies you'd really like to run? So what, what's an example of a study you'd really like to run? Yeah, we've run about six or seven studies over the last four or five years. The most recent one was one we did with the College Board with 300,000 students, 20 hours on Khan Academy, doubled students' gains from the PSAT to the SAT. Uh, over, so, so that was really exciting. But And we're going to continue. What's cool is we can use that information data to keep making it better. Uh, one thing that I've been intrigued by, there have been several small-scale studies that we weren't directly involved with in, in the prison system where there are these – high school equivalency programs within prisons and they started using Khan Academy and at least some of the initial signals are that they, they're seeing very good results. And so I think that's a major opportunity. Uh, we, we uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to see the, the Sultana st story studied, you know, maybe in a less uh, <laughs> scary. scary environment than, you know, a Taliban controlled territory. But how, how can you help students like this? I think, you know, we, we anecdotally get a lot of stories from students with learning disabilities, with dyslexia, uh, ADHD. I think that would be a very interesting thing to formally study. Do you have any urge to pit Khan Academy against some other curriculum to show that, you know, you kick ass? We are constantly trying to pit it against itself. That's right. Uh, you know, and, right. uh, what's cool about this world is we can swap in and swap out things and overnight get 40,000 data points. Yeah. And then we're even putting tooling into the, the site itself so we can measure efficacy and those assessments, make sure they correlate with outside benchmarks. And so one of the dreams is Khan Academy makes just learning accessible for a lot of people, constantly gets better, personalizes for, for folks. But another dream is that you know folks like yourself would want to use this for a platform. So you say, hey, I have a question. What if we change this for this cohort of learners? And then within a week, you get 
you know, a lifetime's worth of data. Yeah. So this is what excites me the most, right? Saul, you have brought education to places where you just don't usually get this kind of education. And you have changed lives. You're going to continue to change lives in prisons and other countries and just, you know, little third graders around the world. And you're doing it for free. You're doing it in a super organized way. And you've got this incredible voice that people can listen to all day long. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you all for listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We're on the campus of Stanford University and on Sirius XM Insight 121.